we have been working our way through the book of Hebrews in the morning service. And at night, we're doing the series, The Book, How We Got It and How to Get the Most Out of It. This morning, it's Hebrews part 7. The power of hope and the temptation to shame as we follow Christ in this present world. The power of hope, and so there's those contrasts, hope and shame. The power of hope, the temptation to shame. I want to talk about what that is and why it exists as we follow Christ in this present world. Hebrews 2, 10, and 11, and I'll try to link this up because I know it's been a week, uh, a break in the series. Hebrews 2, 10, and 11. I hope you have your Bible. Today we'll look at a lot of texts. They're important texts. Some that don't get looked at very often in in a church setting because they don't just sort of float to the surface real easy. You have to read them and think about them. And for that reason, a lot of churches never study these things. So I hope you have a Bible and follow along. For it was fitting that he, this is Father God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, this is us, sons and daughters, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The The four here at the beginning of verse 10 is designed to take you back to verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. This is interesting. Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Not not just the elect, for everyone. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, as as we come into the study of your word that in a special way the Holy Spirit would come. We give, we give a great deal of importance to things less important, and we give less importance to things that are very important, such as the effect of the fall on every one of us in this room. And we need you to help reverse that as we treasure truth from your word this morning. And so guide and direct on both sides of the pulpit, accomplish your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So after talking about the 
the one who was made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, and how he came for this specific purpose, the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It's after that that verse 10 opens with those rather bold words that Christ's death was a fitting death. For it was fitting. Um, an appropriate death. Not pleasant, but a suitable death. So in, in a way we, we can't fully appreciate, at least not easily, this, this description of Christ's death being fitting. That was absolutely essential in the writer's mind as he writes to these Jewish Christians. And we need to remember that that notion of a crucified Lord was deeply scandalous to the first century world. I mean, the Jewish believers to whom our letter was first directed, they had been raised in the Old Testament teaching that death by crucifixion was a sign of the one being crucified cursed of God. That idea, by the way, it came from God himself. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 1, 22, 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, you shall hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree. You shall bury him the same day. Why? For a hangman is, see this? Cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Well, how would they, how would they defile the land? Well, if this didn't happen, if, 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 it, if he remained there, <laughs> if he remained on the tree and they didn't take him down at night because the victim was cursed of God, leaving the victim overnight was a defiling thing. Think about that for a minute. Make no mistake about it. You'll see the same thing, by the way. Paul picks up on this. Paul, more than anyone else, picks up on this. And he says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? It isn't just that he died, but becoming a See it? A curse for us. For it is written, and he's quoting Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so you start to put things together. Oh, this is why those soldiers would come around and break the legs of those hanging on the cross. Death had to come quickly because the Jews were devoutly serious about not defiling the land. By breaking God's law and having that cursed victim hanging on the cross overnight. This was a religious act of the Jews. It was their obedience to God's command. So you can see how the death of God the Son 
the Messiah, on the cross of the curse. You can see how the writer of Hebrews is is trying to get them to, to grasp something that they won't easily grasp. It won't have a good taste to them. The one hanging on the cross of cursing, our writer says it's fitting, appropriate, wonderful. For these Jews, and for a lot of people today, the idea of a saving Messiah and a ruling Lord dying such a pathetic death on the cross, it makes no sense. Surely, surely this can't be fitting. This ending can't be the promised victory. This curse can't produce life. This can't be the one we worship. This Jesus can't be a legitimate object of the church's hope. John the Baptist wasn't the first or the last to say, well, should we look for somebody else? Things aren't going very well here. All of this is on the writer's mind as he unpacks the meaning of the fitness, the appropriateness, the necessity of the death of God's Messiah. There are some hard issues that we're going to address this morning. Point number one. The death of the Christ is neither a mistake or accident. It is rooted in the sovereign will of God. For it was fitting... I just want to look at one phrase for now. We're going to pull this verse apart, kind of phrase by phrase as we work through. So don't try and digest the whole thing right now. For it was fitting that he, this phrase, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For now, just those words, for whom and by whom all things exist. And they are words of worship. Addressed to Father God. Words of doxology and praise. We know that because you'll actually see these types of words, almost verbatim, used over and over again in the early church. I'm just going to read these fast. You don't need to look these up. Romans 11:36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 1 Corinthians 8:6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, when our writer of Hebrews says that the death of Christ came about through the one for whom and by whom all things exist, what he means to do is to declare that the death of Christ wasn't an event outside of Father God's plan. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a disappointment. It wasn't a disaster. It was, it was, it was the unpacking of God's plan for the whole sweep of world history. And our writer wants us to remember that, that you know, we will get nothing else right 
about the meaning of Jesus Christ and the meaning of his death and the meaning of our own lives, unless we start with this recognition that this was the plan of the one for whom and by whom all things exist. And all of that raises a question. If all of this was in the sovereign plan, what, what was the Father's plan? What was the sovereign plan in the cursed death of the Messiah on the cross? Point number two. The purpose of the Son's death is the restoring of lost glory in fallen mankind. And while you might not disagree with that, it is not the typical answer. You, as I would do the same, if someone came up to you and said, why did Jesus die on the cross? I think what most of us would just, the reflex action is, we would say, to forgive my sins. And that's not without New Testament footing either. It's perfectly true. But I look at that as being a, a part of the answer, a part of the process and not the whole answer, not the whole goal of the Father's plan. For it was fitting that he, this is the phrase we looked at, for whom and by whom all things exist. But there's this goal here in, in bringing many sons to glory. Bringing. P- pulling them along. Carrying. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Again, we're just looking at that phrase. In bringing many sons to glory. And the reason we should look carefully at this phrase is... This is the first time. This is the first time that the writer uses that plural term, sons. Previously, only the singular, son, is used. And it's chapter 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 8. And they're always a reference to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God the Son. Verse 10 the emphasis changes. Very first time, what we're seeing is the... we're seeing the fruit of the Son's redemptive work. The firstborn Son, 1-6. He has offspring. That's why he called the firstborn. And, and we should have expected it because our writer didn't just call him the firstborn. He also said that He had an inheritance coming. He would receive something for his atoning work. You can see that, by the way, in in, this is chapter 1, this is verse 2, and then verse 14. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir. So he's, he's going to be getting something, right? That's what that means. Heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 14. Are they not all ministering spirits, this is angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? 
We inherit it. And so the writer of Hebrews is turning our attention now to the collected sons and daughters who, who make up the inheritance of God the Son. That's not a new thought, but, but it's the way he describes their destiny. You, me. In bringing many sons to glory. That word glory is the important word. Because the, the text says that that's, that's the goal of the son's work. Bringing to glory. So glory is the destination. Not just pure, not just forgiven. Glory, brought back to glory. This is not just some form of religious poetic imagery. And if you want to see what the writer of Hebrews is driving at, well, we need to go back in our text to something we've already studied. We need to go back to the way our writer, he sets the work of Christ. You'll remember this. He sets it in the context of Psalm 8. Remember those early messages where I said it, one of the hard things about Hebrews is you go through chapter 1 and a bunch of chapter 2 and all you're doing is seeing a string of Old Testament quotes. Anybody remember when we talked about that? Okay. He talks about Psalm 8 and he did it in Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 6 to 8. This is directly quoting from the 8th Psalm, which our writer applies to us, mankind, and then to Christ. Hebrews 2, 6 to 8. What is, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And I told you how that's a reference to, you go back to Genesis and you see how that word dominion for our created status, dominion, dominion, rule. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he has not, he, he left nothing outside his control. And then these words, at present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't. We just don't. Things are not presently the way God created them for mankind. Our story is one of our story is one of dominion lost. It's a story of sin's bondage. It's a story of soiled dignity. It's a story of broken laws. It's a story of lost righteousness. It's a story with the sad ending of graves gulping down everyone into darkness. More than anything, it's a story of glory lost. So no, we do not see everything in subjection to him. And now, now we're ready to go back to the Hebrews 2.10 text. 
For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. So, taken, take that now, hold it in your mind, and when you link it up with our writer's exposition of lost glory from all of his quotes of Psalm 8, these words are precious indeed. In bringing many sons to glory. So, in spite of everything, we don't see anything going right for fallen mankind. We see glory lost, but in spite of everything, the writer says glory is still the goal, glory is still the destination. God's original plan for mankind's created glory holds. It has not been scrapped. While not yet fully visible yet, the the target of, of a new creation, creation glory, it has not been discarded. The goal of Christ's redemptive work is in line with Father God's creating work. This is the whole point of redemption. It's more than just forgiveness. There will be a new creation. There will be restored glory. Sure, Pastor Don. How do you know? Here's how we know this. And this is the writer's point. That glorious new creation is already presently accomplished and revealed in Christ's glorified, ascended position. That's what he means. Hebrews 2, 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And and the writer has already told us we are included in that glory restored inheritance in Christ. So we don't see mankind's glory as God created it. Not by a long shot. Here's what we do see. Verse 9 of chapter 2. Here's what we do see. But we see, we see Jesus. We don't yet see this, 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 that, or that. But, not yet. We don't see any of it. But we see Jesus ascended. The man in a, in a risen new creation body. Not a ghost, not a spirit. You could touch him. He could eat. We don't yet see this, 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 but we do see Jesus crowned with glory. The man, Christ Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. That's a brief description of the present new creation rule of Christ. There are other passages where you get even more detail. Let me just read these to you. Hebrews 1, 16 to 21. Now, as I read these two texts, I'm going to read two texts from Hebrews. Read with this lens in front of your eyes. Read with this lens of a new creation in Christ that we are going to be pulled into. 
Not just our spirits floating up to heaven after we die. I am not talking about that. I'm not talking about life after death. I'm talking about the life after life after death. Did you get that? Listen as I read these texts and, and let them excite your heart. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. I pray that God will show you something, he says. The spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You go to the doctor, you say, I can't see very well. And he puts those goofy little things on your face and he puts some stuff on the wall. Can you read it now? No. How's this? Yeah, that's pretty good. Is this better? Yeah, that's better. So you, that, that's your physical eyes, okay? Seeing, sharpening. Now, Paul says, I'm praying that what God's going to do, the, that's physical eyes. I'm praying about th these eyes. I'm praying that your heart will see what I'm talking about, he says. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. Why does he, when he says, I want you to see the hope of your inheritance, why does he go on and on and on about the risen Christ? Because that's where you're going, he says. Do you feel that? Here's the other text. I can squeeze this one on the screen. The other was too long. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Okay, there. That's where a lot of people stop. Great to be forgiven. Dead and made alive. Converted. Born again. New birth. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. All of this is in the writer's mind in Hebrews when he says the goal was bringing many sons to glory. Point three. Only one kind of deliverance will do us any good. And only one deliverer is able to provide it. Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. This is where we all started. Where he started saying this was fitting. Even though it was a curse. So, so he has to... He's writing to Jewish believers. And he's, he's got to unpack that. And he's got to make that make sense for them. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, okay, that's where we got to, right there we stopped, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And if you'll remember, the title of the sermon was The Power of Hope, that's that new creation hope, and the temptation to shame. I said we were going to look at those two things. This is where he starts talking about it. Back in verse 9, we were given a pretty crisp picture of the magnitude of deliverance provided through the Son. That's where he said, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by death, here it is, he might taste death for everyone. He might taste death. What are we going to do with the problem of death? What, what solution have our best minds discovered? Who among us avoids the grave? Your visit to the cemetery is coming. This, our writer says, this is our problem. This is a deliverance that only God can provide. And our writer will give a, a deeper explanation toward the end of this chapter in verses we haven't studied yet. Where he says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood. This is us, by the way. He himself, that's Jesus, partook of the same things. The same things meaning flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And, de and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So verse 9, and then verses 14 and 15. They're on, our, they're on our writer's mind when in verse 10 he says, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that's Father God, in bringing many sons to glory, sons and daughters, that's us, should make the founder or the captain, depending on your translation, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, that's Jesus. How was the Christ made perfect through suffering? Wasn't he sinless before his crucifixion? How, how can a sinless person be made perfect? And the key is remembering the perfection that's being described here isn't moral perfection. It's being made perfectly ready for an assignment. prepared for a role. And, and the perfection required for our deliverance from sin and death was the capacity of the divine son to suffer and die. This the pre-existent son could not do. He was made perfect when he came and took on 
genuine, authentic humanity. He took on Don Horbin's humanity. He became one of us to become the founder, 210, of our salvation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, only the Son has tasted death. Made perfect for that role. Point number four. I want to talk about the suffering of Jesus and the power to follow him with joy. This is the last text that will be on the screen. I've put together the three verses, so now it's like, it's like looking at a play and looking at Act 1 or Act 2 and Act 3 and and now I want to say, let's, let's just look at the whole story for a minute, okay? For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Who is that? Father God. Father God. In bringing many sons to glory. Who's that? Us. Should make the founder of their salvation. Who's that? That's Jesus. Perfect through suffering. What kind of perfection? Well flesh and blood that can die, taste death. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, speaking of the, the incarnation of Christ, his, his, that has a beginning point, not his existence as the eternal son, but his birth into this world when he became the firstborn. They have one source, Father God. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, and now you get these Old Testament quotes. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing praise. And again, another quote. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children God has given me. We will look at those next week. All those quotes, they're really significant. My question now is, why do we need to be told about our Lord's suffering? Made perfect through... Why doesn't that say dying? I mean, verse 9 says he tasted death. And I know we need to understand his death. I know that because my Bible shows me over and over there's no pardon for sin, there's no conquering of death for us without our Lord's death and resurrection. We get that. But his suffering references more than just his death. I was thinking about this. His suffering includes being misunderstood by his own family. I mean, the New Testament doesn't word it this way. This is me. But they, they, they must have wondered... It does say they they misunderstood him. They didn't get him. It says that. Did they think he was a little off? Brother Jesus? His suffering included being misunderstood by his own family. His suffering included him agonizing that great unanswered prayer of Jesus. 
the cup that could be removed. It included being despised and rejected of men. The Jesus you love and worship was despised. His suffering included his closest followers uh, denying Peter and betraying Judas, his, his closest followers. His suffering included the rest of them not getting what he was talking about. His suffering included the rest of them taking off when they saw Jesus where he was going to the cross, just deserting him. Why all this suffering? Because you and I are called to the same path in following our Lord here and now. My, my concern is when we sing all these songs about the old rugged cross, I'll cherish the old rugged cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, my concern is when we think about taking up our cross, we never really, we never really put feet under it and figure out, what, what, so what are we talking about? You know those religious slogans that just kind of roll off the lips? You and I are called to follow the path our Lord walked in this world right now. And, and, and the worst suffering, I'm not talking about his death. The worst suffering is, is the betraying inward feeling of shame for standing out visibly aligned for Jesus when it's countercultural to do so. That inward feeling of shame in that university class. That inward feeling of shame at work. Not spoken out loud, just felt in the gut. In front of friends who find your deepest Christian convictions as countercultural, As the declarations of Jesus that led to his execution. And our writer wants us to know that Jesus felt the weight of social unacceptance. He knows what that's like. He knows the sting of persecution. He knows the loneliness about being lied about, being slandered, being misrepresented. He went through everything that makes devotion to Christ difficult in this world. And he has been made perfect in his compassion toward us as we face the same costs for our allegiance to him as he paid for his allegiance to the Father and to our redemption. How can I make you see it? And so our writer tells these struggling Hebrew Christians, most, most commentaries will tell you they're facing intense persecution from from devout Jews who feel they've just blasphemed and left the faith. 
And our writer wants these struggling Hebrew Christians to know that they are one with Christ. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Christ-likeness is more than just not going to dirty movies. And it's also more than just giving food to orphans. This text is pointing to the fact that Jesus was persistent in his commitment to us. Jesus stayed with you and me. He never shrank back. He tasted death for our deliverance. He was never tempted to abandon us. He was faithful to his sinful, fallen brothers and sisters. To the very end and throughout all eternity, Jesus stays with us. Remember this, our writer would say, you can't follow this Christ without experiencing the same reproach from the surrounding culture that he experienced from his. And he stayed with you. Do you get it? He stayed with you. Are you telling your kids about this? Do they think their devotion to Jesus won't be embarrassing sometimes? Do they understand that they're going to they're going to be considered intolerant? Do they understand that? I get it. I mean, I get it. There are levels of Christian discipleship. What you tell a 15-year-old and what you tell a 6-year-old are different. I Please, I understand that. My concern is different. My concern is as they grow, my concern is we don't ever tell them what to expect at all. My concern is they know all about some of the promises and pleasantries of the Christian life until one day they feel, they feel the unexpected shock of discovering not only do other people think differently from them, other people reject them for their commitment to Christ. Do they know that's coming? Because it's coming. And you can't stop it from coming. And at that time, they will be supported by understanding, really, really understanding how the founder of their salvation walked exactly the same path. Am I making sense to you? They will need to to learn to trust the persistent love of Jesus and find a joy in walking the same hard path. They will need to know how proud our faithful Lord is of his faithful brothers and sisters. God help our church to get there.